Welcome to the People Analytics and Future Work Podcast with Al Adamson. Hi, this is Al Adamson, founder and executive director of the Talent Strategy Institute. And I am super fortunate to be here today with Alexis Fink of Intel. Alexis, you there? I'm here. Hi, Al. It's nice to talk with you. Yeah, great talking with you as well. Now, you've been uh, chopping wood in this thing called People Analytics for uh, quite a while, and you're one of the uh, unique individuals that has an I.O. background, so you're you're very astute at research, and you have the technology bent, and you're uh, a leader, so you influence change through the organization. So if you don't mind, just introduce yourself and a little bit about what you think about this people analytics uh, world. Boy, thank you for that generous introduction. And you're right, I have been chopping wood in this world for a while. I sort of got just lucky that the thing I went to graduate school for back in the early 90s has all of a sudden become fashionable. I got a doctorate in industrial organizational psychology at Old Dominion. I had the opportunity to do uh, research, real um, modeling, statistical research for the Navy and for NASA. I got the opportunity to do merger and acquisition integration kinds of things and competency modeling for GE. Started my career doing that back in the 90s. And so what we've seen evolve where we're using statistical models, I've been able to do that at BASF for about eight years, had the chance to run talent analytics as well as some leadership development, management development kinds of things at Microsoft. And for the last five years here at Intel, uh, the kinds of things that we've been talking about with talent analytics really have defined my adulthood. It's been a great thrill for me, frankly, to find that the work that I love has all of a sudden become fashionable and popular uh, and that there are folks outside of the couple thousand IO psychologists who care about this and see its potential to make work more effective for the people doing the work, uh, to make it more competitive for the organizations doing the work, and to be able to uh, apply science to areas that had previously been largely the domain of gut instinct. Right. And, you know, as we have been in this space for a while, you know, we've seen it, of course, evolve. And to your point, it's getting more fashionable. Where do you think the discipline is going? I and mean, we can talk a lot about the, the history, but I understand you've been doing some work with PSYOP on the future of that discipline. Can you speak to you know, what you've been doing there? I can speak a little bit to it. There are a couple of themes that really come out loudly uh, if you are paying attention to the data science side of this, if you're paying attention to the HR side of this, uh, I look at IO psychology as being kind of the intersection of those two. Seeing really, really strong uh, understanding, perhaps more so than we've had in the past, at the depth of requirement for true multidisciplinary expertise as we tackle these projects. You can't be only a smart person about data and have great projects uh, and expect them to be influential. You can't be only a smart person about HR. Uh, you can't be only uh, a great person at convincing people of the rightness of your ways. You have to have all of those domains. You have to have high quality data. And separately, many fields, particularly computer science, but also uh, politics and ethics and, and um, of course, here, us in HR have been talking increasingly over the last five years and, and strongly increasingly over the past year about the role of automation and the role of artificial intelligence as it starts to become not the stuff of science fiction, but really part of our day-to-day -day lives between the way we can handle images now, 
behind the hundreds of applications that I've seen for chatbots, uh, behind all kinds of interactions between automation, between artificial intelligence, and between the production of work, uh, there are really, really interesting opportunities and really, really interesting problems for us to tackle. So those would be the two themes that, that leap out most strongly. One, the depth of the need to be truly, deeply multidisciplinary. And second, the need to really pay attention about the implications of the coming tsunami of artificial intelligence and automation. Well, taking off that last point, uh, the machine learning, artificial intelligence, and, and how that's going to uh, potentially take away work that humans are now doing, mainly around reporting potentially, uh, where do you see it landing in terms of what it's going to do, what value it is going to add, what problems uh, AI and machine learning and natural language processing are going to solve? It's interesting. This isn't the first time we as a species or society have faced this. We saw it with the steam engine. We've seen it with a variety of uh, the industrial revolution and, and other major technological shifts. We're talking about this as sort of a, a fourth wave of that. And I just saw a report from McKinsey out this week saying that where we got half a percent-ish uh, of additional sort of GDP level productivity out of those prior innovations, we'd expect about double that level of overall GDP level uh, productivity gains from this, from this wave, which doesn't suggest that all of a sudden we'll have hundreds of millions of people with no work to do. Uh, the kinds of trends that I've seen, and of course you have people on either side, AI is going to be the end of us, the end of us they will uh, they'll achieve senescence and then kill all the humans. Um, that's, I think, a bit overblown and many, although there are some great thinkers who are espousing that position, uh, many people will say, no, you're, you're, um, you're taking this a little bit too far in the way of science fiction. The patterns we're seeing now and that we can reasonably expect to move into the future are that we can incorporate the effectiveness and efficiency coming out of these models and then provide a higher level of service, a more expertly tuned level of service within fundamentally the same cost envelope. So for example, this is an HR audience. Uh, I've seen a great number of automated and artificial intelligence and machine learning solutions trying to help find diverse candidates trying to help find candidates with specific information, trying to help identify outstanding leaders earlier in the pipeline, uh, trying to use uh, automated chatbot style interactions to answer questions about your benefits or to engage in scheduling, to go back to a recruiting example. And by and large, that hasn't resulted in, gosh, I guess we don't need recruiters anymore. Right. Instead, that's largely, uh, that's largely freed up those recruiters to do much more, um, much more thorough consulting with the hiring managers, more thorough preparation uh, with the candidates. So they've been able to take that same cost envelope and deliver a higher quality of service. And most of the really thoughtful thinkers uh, I've, I've seen and reading I've been doing suggest that we should be seeing patterns more like that as opposed to um, hordes of the unemployed who have been replaced by machines. Yeah, and I agree with that. And I also have seen many uh, as the emergence of machine learning and AI and these different analytical uh, techniques and, and tools uh, have emerged and gained uh, prominence and mindshare uh, that there is a 
shall we say, technology-centric uh, approach. And there hasn't been arguably as much attention being uh, given to the actual data, the measures that are being captured, and uh, organizations internally haven't been as creative. Uh, obviously, you, given your I.O. background, have designed surveys, have designed processes that have generated data. If you are advising a, one of your peers or someone who is embarking on this journey or looking at uh, a, an automation uh, solution, uh, would you encourage them to be very discerning and attentive and creative around what data these processes and tools are going to be either creating or absorbing and analyzing? Uh, the very first thing I learned in my very first computer science class back in, it would have been the 70s or 80s, was garbage in, garbage out, right? That's yep. not like it's a new insight. Uh, and the more we can have data that are relevant and rich, the better we'll be. I recently came across someone who said that there was an inverse relationship between the availability of a piece of data and its likely usefulness. Hmm. So the data that you just have laying around, while convenient and tempting, may not actually be all that useful in terms of optimizing the processes, in terms of giving uh, your clients or audience, whoever you're, you're attending to, giving them the kind of service that they need. So your point about making sure you have the right data to feed into this process is really, really important. If you're feeding in data, let's pretend you're building a machine learning model. Uh, if you're feeding in data that reflect a set of deeply biased human judgments, that machine is going to come out every bit as biased as the input that, went, that was fed into it. Um, so the, your question um, is sort of a leading one. Absolutely, you have to think very carefully about what are the data that you're using? Uh, how are those data framed? What's the accuracy? Do they reflect the best of what we know? What is the, the uh, gardening of that data you really need to do before you calcify it into a, uh, into a black box, into a machine learning model or, or similar analytic technique? Yeah, and you're absolutely spot on. It, it, it is a leading question, and it, uh, it is one that, <laughs> um, shamelessly, <laughs> it, because I see many people, analytics leaders or workforce planners or effectively being customers of existing data sets and they don't have the internal equity or they don't have the uh, uh, maybe uh, experience to step in front and say, hey, you know, we're implementing a new system, we're creating a new process. And if you want this question answered, then we need to generate data that's going to be appropriate to answer that question. So you've built up internal equity there at Intel before Microsoft. And you know, so I imagine there's some sort of governance or uh, collaboration that you've created. Can you speak to how you were able to influence the data that you in turn analyze and, and, uh, and share? Well, there are, thank you for your confidence in me. Uh, there are two <laughs> the answers to that. The first is that there are some disciplines like marketing that do this very well. They'll go off and do an A-B study and they'll compare, hey, I, I thought this was interesting. I'm going to send out a thousand versions of this marketing campaign and a thousand versions of the other one and we'll see what the results look like when they come back. You know, give me three weeks and I'll give you an answer, kind of, a, kind of an approach. And I've been fairly uh, fortunate that I've been able to sort of buy myself that three weeks or six weeks to go off and genuinely collect data that would answer the question instead of just 
shopping around, seeing what I had laying around and trying to create something. It, uh, it puts me in mind of there's a cooking show on NPR and you call them up and you say, I've got these four ingredients. What can I make? And it's like, you know, I've got pickles and I've got beets and I've got a bag of flour and, you know, what can I make out of this? Uh, you don't want to be making really strange things because those are the only four things that happen to be in your pantry, particularly not if it's this is a week before Thanksgiving, particularly not if you're trying to make a Thanksgiving dinner. You really <laughs> want to make sure that you've got cranberries and you really are going to need those Yukon gold potatoes for the very best mashed potatoes. And you're going to need the, the centerpiece, <clears throat> typically, you know, that, that beautiful turkey. So you have to go out and find the pieces that will create the experience that you want and need. It also puts me in mind of a really old joke. I've seen uh, cartoon versions of this that are 100 years old. Uh, someone's searching around on the floor, typically looking for keys, and, and it's a dark parking lot. Bystander comes by and starts looking, and after a half an hour, they're coming up dry. It's like, gosh, I can't, I can't find these keys anywhere. Are you sure this is where you lost them? And the original gentleman stands up and says, no, no, I dropped them over there by my car. <laughs> and Bystander says, well, then why have I been on my knees over here for the last half hour? Say, oh, well, this is where the light is. This is where I can see. Yep. And so often we do that with our data. Yep. We look at what happens to be laying around, uh, which might not be very useful. If you think about something like manager readiness, the data you likely have lying around is something like uh, how long have they been a manager? How long have they been in their grade? Uh, how many people do they manage currently? Which is not terribly uh, useful for thinking about how is someone ready to make that jump from first line manager to manager of managers, which is really has some fundamentally different skills in it. You're not going to be able to ascertain that just from the number of years they've been in their position. The number of years they've been in their position is likely the data you have laying around. If you really want to be able to help smooth that transition, help uh, people themselves learn, help the organization create better choices, you're likely going to have to go out and, and generate or collect some new data. Now, given that, yeah, let's say you don't own a management assessment you know, process as the leader of people or talent analytics or in your talent intelligence, uh, yeah, how would you have that conversation does the chro or head of talent need to facilitate discussions not only with uh, the people analytics and say assessment leader but maybe the individual who might own the survey which may or may not uh, be within the people analytics uh, center of expertise I, again how do you have that uh, collaboration facilitated over time so there are a couple of points, uh, plugs that I want to make before diving into that. The first is that just because you have data doesn't mean you can use it. Hmm. The privacy policies that you've put in place, the promise that you made to employees when they gave you those opinions, those absolutely have to be respected. And one thing that um, continues to make me uh, sad and frustrated is uh, when people assume that simply because an organization has access to a data, it's appropriate to be used. Hmm. So the first plug I'd put in is make sure that you're always uh, complying with that privacy policy. Uh, sometimes that means going back and saying, hey, cohort of 100 leaders who've been successful, I want to go back and find out what it was about you five years ago that differentiated you. May I use this data? So offering people an active opt-in. Uh, and sometimes it is, hey, you know what? I'm going to do kind of a, a little bit of a halfway study right now, and we're going to set something up so that we can give you more information in six months' time, in 12 months' time, as we watch people progress. 
So the first is to realize that you need to be thoughtful about the data and that sometimes you'll need to build a multi-part uh, study. The second is partnership, and you use that word, is incredibly, incredibly important. Um, I've come to realize that uh, my success rate at doing projects where the takeaway message is, I'm so much better at your job than you are, is very low. <laughs> uh, in general, people don't want to work with me if that's the way I approach them, right? Right. <clears throat> so, so understanding, spending time and developing good relationships and recognizing that all of us are here for the same objectives. It's not so that I can do this sexy research and be the coolest kid in town. Trust me, I have no prayer of being the coolest kid in town. It's much more to say we as a company and we as a set of individuals really are fundamentally invested in having the talent pipeline to this leader question, the talent pipeline we need to be successful in the future. We as a group of stewards for, this, for these individuals, we are vested in seeing them get the opportunities that will let unleash their greatest possible potential. So if you have programs and data and cohorts, and I have some extra tools that you haven't used in the past, what are those areas that you're struggling with that my tools might be able to help? And so starting from the very beginning to define a problem or an opportunity, uh, designing it absolutely in partnership, walking through it in partnership, uh, and then jointly owning those results up to CHO, CHRO, CEO, uh, whoever that key stakeholder would be, in my experience has, um, has meant that the times when I've gotten a talk to the hand response have been fairly limited. Of course, there will, you'll occasionally run into people who are territorial, yeah. um, but more often than not, um, if you can uh, approach people and engage them in a genuine and sincere spirit of partnership, you can get pretty far. Sure. And uh, yeah, absolutely agreed. And uh, just a, a point of clarity, when you reached out uh, based um, on your experience over your career, were those partnerships formed under the auspices of a formal governance structure, uh, like a talent strategy team or something like that? Or was it just like project to project or on an as-need basis? So all of the above. Uh, there are times when it's part of a formal team. There are times when it's, hey, I see you doing stuff, and I think I can help you. I've, I've seen you be frustrated with this, and I think I can help. Uh, and other times um, when it's just purely, you know, project by project, here's what's going on. Um, there, are, uh, uh, there are also opportunities uh, if you stay in an organization for a while uh, to build longitudinal relationships where then people will come to you and say, hey, I think you can help me about this. And, and gosh, can I, can I even get, I want to run this survey. Can I get 30 minutes of your time to help me think about the strategy for it? Offering those small chunks or snack-sized pieces of expertise and advice can help build a relationship where you are really a partner and not a threat. Yep. Uh, the other thing that I've consistently done in that vein um, is often people, the most common thing that happens, <clears throat> particularly if you're starting to build relationships, is folks will build what they want to build, and then they'll come to you an hour before they're going to go talk to their stakeholder and be like, hey, you're the analytics person. Would you please you know, sign off that this was good? <laughs> At which point, right, you, you try not to laugh because that's an unkind response. Right. Uh, and, and you try to do the best you can, and then you try to contract um, for the next opportunity. 
one of the things that I have learned through having had several of those uh, last minute, would you please just rubber stamp this kinds of experiences, is that most folks, God bless them, do not share my deep passion and decades of experience in talent analytics. I just can't understand that. And so they don't have, it's just crazy, uh, they don't have the, uh, they don't have the same framing that I do to know what kind of a question is even answerable. Hmm. It's sort of like the uh, the old Henry Ford thing about if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. They have no idea that the car was possible. Right. And so you have to kind of meet people at the faster horse. And I've gotten, uh, I've had a fair number of successes where uh, someone asks you for that faster horse and instead of berating them and making them feel stupid and wanting them, making them never want to talk to you again, you lean in on the faster horse and then I've realized I need to do it, at least I, other people may be more sophisticated. I need to do it on the exact same slide. Here on the left side, we see your faster horse. Here on the right side, we see this newfangled you know, vehicle I've built. Don't you want that? <clears throat> and you can use that opportunity uh, of answering the question in the best possible way that they know how to ask it, yep. either as a consulting opening or as an opportunity to say, hey, look, I am here to support you. And here are three things you didn't know to ask that could be really valuable. Yeah. You asked me how many and where, and I got to a why and what's next yep. kind of answer. Yep. You didn't even know that was a doable thing because you didn't know I could scrape that in Python or you didn't know I could build this optimization model or whatever the thing was. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's not the client's responsibility to be sophisticated in this. It's yours. That makes perfect sense <laughs> and a super reasonable approach. Uh, is there a way to institutionalize the framing that uh, is in your head? Obviously, they're not going to get a PhD <laughs> overnight, but is there a way just to have a better uh, orientation towards data? And have you uh, made movements towards that end? So yes and no. Um, one of the ways to be oriented is to be not necessarily oriented only towards data, but to be oriented towards curiosity. Mm. What's the way in which, how could I know better? What's the way in which I could confirm my hypotheses? And that requires a willingness to be wrong. That requires a willingness to say, here's my gut instinct. Let's build on it. Uh, you're seeing a lot of talk now across the across industries, not just HR, about the importance of sort of a growth mindset and what's new and how can I expand, et cetera. So a piece of it is just that willingness to go out and, and experience new things. Yeah. Uh, uh -huh. Another piece of it is uh, within organizations, I have in some organizations been really successful at uh, institutionalizing a few core models, sort of a systems model of how an organization thinks. Here is a standard framework for how we approach whatever it is, change management or, or uh, management effectiveness, uh, which gives you sort of an anchor to hang on to. Um, and then finally, there's a piece of it that's incumbent upon the analytics professionals to realize, particularly in HR, uh, this is a little bit new, where HR as a profession, the leadership space as a profession, learning overall, for many decades, um, your depth of relationship and your personal experience and your finely honed insight were your differentiators and they were your sources of power. 
And so now the idea that someone who maybe has a background in IT could swoop in and publicly correct you is genuinely threatening. So we in analytics need to be respectful of the fact that we are in some ways upsetting the apple cart. Uh, and if we do it in a triumphant zero sum way, I think that we will all lose. Yep. Agreed. When we can do it, when, yeah, when we can do it in a collaborative way, when we can do it in a one plus one equals three kind of way, yep. uh, I, I think what we can do is sort of un, unbounded. We can do all kinds of great stuff, but we've got to not go, you know, peeing in somebody's oatmeal on the way. Yeah. So you're talking about enabling the HR business partner community, making people feel safe so they can be curious and, and you really uh, be uh, creative at the end of the day, and both in terms of how they look at a problem and go and solve that problem. Is that accurate? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And some of that is in the way we approach partnership and set up projects. Some of that is in the way that um, we even present information and data. I have become, I've always been a fan of good data visualization. I have become so much more enamored of it in the last two to three years as a powerful tool that can be really intuitive uh, and that can be very fast in terms of generating the insights in a way that is non-threatening. Uh, it doesn't ask people to scan you know, entire slides with a hundred cells on them and find the pattern in a way that feels like a test, yeah. uh, but rather says, hey, uh, here is some information and it's presented in a way that's really optimized for the way uh, human beings process information. And not only can you, business HR person, uh, absorb this without feeling any sort of ego threat, like it doesn't make you feel stupid. Yeah. Uh, you can also take it and very capably represent it to your client. So now that empowers that partner, be there an HR business person, as you suggested, or leadership, or, or frankly, anyone, um, they can now leverage the power of those analytics in their consulting conversations with their client, um, which then creates that one-to-one -one makes three kind of a situation. I, say, I mean, I love your energy and ideas and perspective on this. I, I, say that. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, you get me inspired and excited. I, there's one thing, I want to address before uh, we have to wrap up, and, and it uh, is something that I, it's not only I, I see, but I hope, and I'll, I'll own that, and I just want to get your take on it. Like, when we have been doing this work, you know, 20 plus years ago, there was a research orientation, and the value proposition landed primarily with executives, CHRO and others. Uh, over the years, you know, with the democratization of data, the data visualization you speak of, there's a higher value proposition for the HR business partner community and uh, managers in some cases. And it then begs the question, what's in it for the employees? After all, to your earlier point, they're generating the data. And so do you see, uh, as we move forward in our discipline, the analytics creating a value proposition for individual employees themselves? Oh, I love that question. And actually, that value proposition is, has always been there, depending on the way the projects were built. I think that going back to an earlier theme in our conversation, the opportunity for automation, the opportunity for artificial and artificial intelligence, the opportunity for delivering what were previously very custom white glove kinds of experiences at scale to all employees is really some of what's most exciting. If you think about the way that 
executive coaching used to be really the purview of only senior, senior executives. And now we're seeing scalable tools that fit in a smartphone that will give you that kind of feedback and exercises. If you think about the kind of career coaching that perhaps previously you would have spent $1,000 on or more as you were considering role opportunities and you would really need to invest in someone to help you write that resume effectively, think about how you would even translate from maybe one of those jobs that has half of it gone away to automation and now you need to suggest to your manager or another manager, here's how you could do additional things. We're seeing automated tools now. Uh, I just saw this past week, uh, Microsoft and LinkedIn are using some of their joint data to build, uh, to help people build compelling resumes based on data and skills. Hmm. We're seeing automated, automated and artificial intelligence recruiting tools and uh, we're seeing natural language processing tools that can help you uh, tune the kinds of keywords that can help suggest careers that are, you know, a quarter of a point degree to the left, but but you aren't currently positioning your experience to compete for those. Here are the ways you can you can do that. Suggest career paths that you might not have thought of that are a great application for the skills that you have. That kind of insight and advice was previously expensive and rare. Mm -hmm. And we are already seeing in practice, commercially available, in the hands of humans, um, tools that can provide that kind of experience very, very broadly uh, and that can help individual managers. Similarly, uh, help you get the kind of coaching about how you show up in meetings, I, you know, looking at all of your uh, uh, sociometric uh, information, how you're managing your own time. Uh, based on information that you can now get from your calendar management or your email chains, et cetera. There's tremendous opportunity to take those things uh, and make them available much, much more broadly. And uh, as you're sharing that, it it begs for me, and this might be the last question, is would you advise that be elevated in priority Uh just given where we are, because there's this notion that, you know, the pace of change and the value of apps and so forth in the uh, public market outside the corporate environment is is higher than what it is within the uh, employment environment, within the corporate environment. So you know, is that something that you would say, hey, given the proliferation of those tools, if my employer isn't offering those tools, are they missing an opportunity and potentially even worse, uh, you know, not delivering on a compelling employee value proposition? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, organizations have burdens that individuals don't, and that's things about interoperability. Yeah. Uh, that's all kinds of security responsibilities, et cetera. And so it would be, I think, glib of me to say, of course, all corporations should be offering these. Yep. Many of them are available at low cost for individuals. Uh, and organizations need to think very carefully about what are the audiences and the models and the particular leadership advice that aligns to their culture. Yeah. We are already seeing these kinds of tools in place in organizations. Um, for organizations that may be smaller or more mid-market, it can be a great way to jump in and leapfrog uh, and get the kinds of access to things that they couldn't have. They can't have a staff of their own executive coaches, for example, but they could uh, access a tool like, like some of those that are commercially available. Um, so I think it's a, a qualified yes. Yep. Like absolutely, there is potential, uh, and organizations are absolutely already um, offering bits and pieces here. 
but the level of integration with an enterprise HR system, the the need to make sure that there are appropriate you know, privacy protections in place for all of the countries in which you may operate, uh, it adds a little bit of complexity. And it is appropriate and, frankly, ref reflects a thoughtfulness and responsibility uh, when organizations step through that um, in a methodical way instead of just leaping into it. That's a very uh, appropriate answer. And this will, in fact, be my last <laughs> question. I know we're, we're at time. What's, what's your hope for the discipline you know, over the next you know, 12, you know, 18 months? Uh, you mentioned privacy. Uh, you know, w w you know, obviously, you don't want someone out there messing things up by compromise, doing some work that you know, might not be yeah. appropriate and that hurts the discipline. But what's your like, upside hope? What would you like to, to see happen over the next couple of years? Oh, gosh, um, I would love us to be solving um, more, solving problems to get closer to the core of how organizations function in order to be able to support organizational performance, hmm. uh, support the individuals in them and the enterprises with which we do our work. Uh, and that can mean paying attention to different levels of analysis, paying attention to what happens at a team, the interactions, et cetera. I would love us to have more attention as a field about the role of your coworkers and your manager. I would love us to figure out a way to really appropriately and respectfully use some of these sources of what people are referring to as digital exhaust. Yep. So what's happening in your metadata? With whom are you spending time? And how can you use that information uh, to become more effective, to create uh, more time uh, to be focused at work as well as focused with your family when you're off work. I would love us to get to a better enterprise view of influence where we can be closer to strategy, uh, whether that looks at site strategy, uh, whether that looks at organization design, whether that looks at actually work process design in order to incorporate some of the opportunities from automation and artificial intelligence and really let us capitalize on those experiences instead of just trying to do one-for-one -one rip and replace with uh, current tasks that humans perhaps in a service center somewhere might be doing. Uh, it's an awful lot of aspiration. Um, I think that a lot of uh, analytics teams are currently doing a ton of work around surveys and a ton of work around things like predicting attrition, which are valuable. Um, but that's sort of the first step in the journey. Yeah. And there's an enormous amount of additional impact that I think we can have. And I'm excited to see it happen more broadly. Well, Alexis, uh, the coolest kid in town. Um, thank you very, very much <laughs> for sharing your insights and idea. I mean, really, um, it's, it's a joy to speak with you and uh, look forward to seeing you very soon, hopefully in, in February, if, uh, if not earlier. If, all right. I look forward to seeing you as always. All right. Thanks again. Thanks. Thanks for joining the People Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. To find other podcasts, videos, upcoming events, and to join the Global People Analytics Network, please visit us at globalpeopleanalytics.net.